Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and you are listening to Keeping the Faith. On this podcast, you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Keeping the Faith is brought to you without ads or commercial interruption of any kind, except for this one invitation. I have friends who are inspired by what they hear from Keeping the Faith, and those friends support my work. But you can support this podcast as well by buying me a coffee. Buy Me a Coffee is a tiny little link where you can throw a few bucks into my tip jar and keep me busy behind the counter serving up the best episodes I have to offer. Simply go to buymeacoffee.com slash McBrayer, and you can easily and securely donate to the cause. You can also go to my website, ronniemcbrayer.org, and click on Podcast. You will find several ways to lend a hand, and you can also choose your favorite listening platform, be it Apple, Podbean, or Spotify, so that you will never miss a single life-changing, day-making, death-defying episode. Thank you for being a regular listener. Fannie Lou Townsend was born on a cotton farm in the Mississippi Delta, October 6th, 1917. The last of 20 children born to James Lee and Ella Townsend. That one sentence contains enough adversity for multiple lifetimes. Cotton Farm, Mississippi Delta, 1917, the last of 20 children. Fannie Lou had to get tough and get there in a hurry because you got tough or you got buried. But she was more than tough. She was smart, too. She attended the local school for as far as it went. She excelled in math, reading, spelling, poetry. She became an expert interpreter of the Scriptures, rose as a leader and a preacher in her church. She became the bookkeeper for the local farming conglomerate. And all the while, she could pick 300 pounds of cotton a day and haul it to the gin. Hers was and is a story of bootstrap accomplishment. You know that phrase. She pulled herself up by her own bootstraps. Because she rose eventually to national prominence, she was fawned after by all the leading news networks, was feared by politicians, everyone from local mayors to the President of the United States. She would testify multiple times before Congress and speak at universities, an uncompromising voice for equality and justice. She only had one strike against her. She was black. Take that bit of information back to that opening sentence. Cotton Farm, Mississippi Delta, 1917, the last of 20 children. And now you realize she was up against the Jim Crow South, cross-burning Klansmen, savage oppression, It's no wonder she loved that old spiritual we just sang today. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And that was just the beginning of her troubles. Over the course of her lifetime, Fannie Lou Townsend Hamer 
survived 15 different attempts on her life, narrowly escaping each time. She had to repeatedly move, hiding house to house, lest she be assassinated or abducted. In 1962, she was arrested in Winona, Mississippi for not addressing a police officer as sir. Afterward, in the county jail, she was sexually assaulted and beaten so severely with a blackjack that it took six weeks for her to recover and she had to learn to walk again and never walked again without a limp for the rest of her life. She went in for a physical exam a year later to her local hospital and the doctor put her to sleep and gave her a hysterectomy without her consent, rendering her sterile and unable to have children. A Mississippi appendectomy, she called it. And later when she adopted a daughter, the child died of hemorrhaging because the hospital refused to treat the child because of who the child's mother was. She said in the face of all this, I guess if I'd had any sense, I'd been a little scared. But what's the point of being scared? The only thing they could do was kill me. And it kind of seemed like they had been trying to do that a little bit at a time so long as I could remember. But nobody knows the trouble I've seen. That's one of her best lines, but it's not her best one. She saved that one for Harlem. It was 1964 and the civil rights movement was ablaze across the country. Fannie Lou Hamer was barnstorming city to city, telling her story. Here's a part of her speech that she gave that day. We have been dying in Mississippi year after year after year for nothing. And I don't know, I may get bumped off as soon as I get back to Mississippi. But what you should realize is that people have been getting bumped off there for nothing all these years. And a lot of people are going to roll their eyes at me today, but I'm going to tell you just like it is. You know this whole society is sick. We have to stop telling lies, that's all. The truth is the only thing to set us free. And the truth is, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. What a great line that is. I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. What a woman. To stay at this work, to keep on keeping on, even after you've just had a belly full of hate and injustice and personal up-in-your-face effort to kill you. No one here, no one that will listen, I dare say, to this talk later, has ever endured anything like the corpus of offense suffered by Fannie Lou Townsend Hamer. If anyone had the right to feel sick and tired of being sick and tired. It was her. She was nearly 50 years old when she gave that speech. 50 years of weariness and trouble. And she would only live a few more years dying of breast cancer. But it was finally having enough that drove her to work for change. Because nothing changes until you are sick and tired of the way it is. Ever. Getting sick and tired may not change things, for sure. But I guarantee you, nothing will change in your life or the life around you until you are, in fact, sick and tired of the way things are. Why do I tell you stories like these? I mean, this isn't preaching. Some people have told me that. It's just storytelling. Well, two questions in response to that. How did you first learn anything? 
It was a story. David and Goliath, Noah and the Ark, Aesop, Brothers Grimm, G.I. Joe, Barbie, Marvel Comics, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Harry Potter, Jonah and the Whale, the Battle of Bunker Hill. These are all stories that teach, that open the imagination, that put you in a place where someone else is to be them, to learn from them, to become like them. Story is the greatest power that we have when it comes to learning anything. And two, what was Jesus' most employed rhetorical teaching technique? We call it a parable, which is a story. He brought listeners into His majestic universe, a universe of His making, so that they would be able to hear the truth and be changed by it. Stories like Fannie Lou Hamer's are told for the same reason. They are infused with a culture that most of us have little dealing with. With sufferings that we can only hear about. With perseverance we can only begin to understand. With truth and witness that offend us and trouble us. But in fact can set us free. Stories like hers are very much gospel in the sense that they are good news. Not because the story turns out perfectly like a fairy tale, but because it is good news of healing and liberation and truth and reconciliation that drove her to be who and what she was. Even when she was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And because stories like hers connect us that way, they connect us to the greater story of the gospel itself. The good news of healing, liberation, truth, and reconciliation that drove Jesus to be what and who He was. And maybe this sick and tired of being sick and tired narrative is most evident in this story we have before us today. Because we have a man who has spent decades in disability. We have a man who has no one to help him. No one to make things right. We have a man who is sick and tired. The question is, among others, is he sick and tired of being sick and tired? Has he had enough of it? Because nothing changes until you've had enough of it. We find this man sitting beside a sacred swimming pool of sorts. The pool is called Bethesda. Bethesda means house of mercy, and that is what those gathering around were looking for. This was a collection point in the city of Jerusalem for the sick and the lame, the blind, the paralyzed, like this man. They came to receive a hoped for, a prayed for mercy, not from a physician, but from the waters of Bethesda themselves. These waters were believed to have a miraculous healing power for the sick. I wonder if we could get the slide of the Scripture back up. Not that one quite yet. Back, back, back. There you go. If you look at the Scripture, it says John 5, 1-9a. A meaning the first part of verse 9. But if you had been following along in a numbered Bible, numbered verses, you would have noticed that there is a verse missing in our text today. Verse number 4. Is missing. It's just not even there. It's gone. Anna was reading. She got to verse 3. Completed verse 3. Next verse. Verse 5. Here is the verse that is missing. 
For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. I did not remove that verse before anyone accuses me of such a thing. The translators of modern, of the modern New Testament removed that verse. Why did they do such a thing? Well, our English Bible is only 500 years old. And when the translators of the King James Bible were doing their work, they had just a handful of manuscripts, a couple hundred. And that's what they used, along with Greek and Latin translations, to produce the New Testament that we have. And in those manuscripts, verse 4 was there. Well, in those 500 years since the English Bible was produced, there have been 5,200 manuscript discoveries of documents pertaining to the New Testament. And now, all of our modern translations use those because they're older and they're more reliable. And translators have discovered that verse number 4 isn't in the best and most reliable text. Verse 4 is used as an explanation as to why all those people had gathered around that swimming pool. There was the belief during that time and in the first century that an angel would come down from heaven and jump in the pool, unknown and unseen, and the water would bubble. It wasn't mineral water. It wasn't air escaping the limestone from the bottom of the pool. It wasn't an unexplained ripple. It was God sending an angel to trouble the waters. And when the waters were troubled, the first one in the pool got healed. And if you were not the first one, not only were you the last one is a rotten egg, you kept your disease. But that's the idea of why they're all there. Uh, This is not an abstract or strange belief, not for the first century, not even for today. Here's your picture in India, for example. The Ganges River is considered holy. And in late spring, every year, thousands upon thousands descend upon the Ganges River for a religious festival. And in the Hindu faith, they believe this river is the place where heaven and earth collide. And if you are in that river, swimming on the right day, performing the right ceremony, they believe that your sins, up to ten reincarnations, can be washed away. That's not much different than the Jewish belief of the first century, that if I can get to that water at the right time, then the sickness that I have will be healed. So there is this sense in the east, of water being holy, water being living. Now take that into the Gospel of John, where Jesus calls Himself, what? Living water. I am water moved by the Spirit of God. I am water that gives life. And that's why these people are there at Bethesda. Because they had this sense that heaven was being brought to earth. And this man in the story is sitting by this pool waiting for an angel. And he gets Jesus instead. Jesus asked the man a single question. And it seems like a strange question actually. Would you like to get well? Fannie Lou may have put it in her own way. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? 
for four decades, this man has been laying alongside this pool. For four decades, he has crawled toward the water at the slightest little bubble, hoping to be the first one in. For four decades, he has been incapacitated and unable to do much else except to beg. And Jesus comes along and asks what at first blush could be a proverbial stupid question. Would you like to get well? Well, duh. Of course I would like to get well. But that's not what the man says. He doesn't answer Jesus, of course I'd like to get well. He begins to explain to Jesus why he can't. He begins to offer excuses as to why he's not well already. Maybe this man didn't believe that he could get better. Maybe this man thought, this is just how life is for me. So he doesn't say, yes, of course I want to get well. He says, quote, I can't, sir, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Jesus' question seems to compound his helplessness in some ways. And I think this is the very thing Jesus is moving the man toward. And the man isn't alone in this. There are plenty of people who are sick and tired. But they're not sick and tired enough yet to get well. Hmm. They kind of like the stuckness where they are. And you know people like this. They have a problem, an issue, an addiction, a sickness, a relationship, a chronic thorn in their flesh. And there is something they could do about it, but they're just not ready to do anything about it. They're pretty miserable. And they're making you miserable. <laughs> they're making you miserable, but they're not so miserable that they're willing to change. Whatever it is they have is this kind of totem. They're precious. Their identity even. It's where they have learned to be at home. They're really sort of proud of having a problem. You know people like that? You see it with some addicts. They need that addiction because getting well would mean moving on. Getting well would mean dropping their excuses and they just don't have the courage for that yet. It's too frightening. In the medical field, it's called Munchausen's Syndrome. It's when someone deliberately remains ill. Why would they do that? So that others will take care of them. So that they will gain the attention of a whole community of people. In psychological terms, it's called willful or learned helplessness. There's just nothing I can do about this problem. When in fact, there are multiple options at their disposal. But only if you are sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm not finished with our friend at Bethesda. We'll be back here next week for one more dip in this pool. And I promise it won't take three months and four haircuts on this one. But I want to finish today with C.S. Lewis. Speaking of stories that instruct us. You have to know about the Chronicles of Narnia. Produced by this great imagination. It's really uh, interesting when you think that he and Tolkien are writing at the same time. And are friends. And met in a little group called the Inklings. 
And they would talk about their different stories that would become these massive stories that dominate Europe and the West even to this day. The Hobbit, Chronicles of Narnia. But there's a lesser known book that I've talked about before called The Great Divorce. It's a tiny little thing. Not this massive collection of books like Narnia. And in this book, he paints a picture of these poor lost souls trying to get to heaven. If they want to go. But they have to catch this bus to do it. And it's this floating bus that goes up into the sky. But they catch it at this station in this dark, dreary, cold, wet town where I imagine what London might be like in January. And they all get on this bus and they're transported to this miraculous place that is like a national park on steroids. It's just one of the most beautiful places you've ever seen. Green fields, blue skies, crazy mountains. But the people that arrive on that bus, C.S. Lewis calls them ghosts. Because they're so thin and unsubstantial. And they're just not fit for that world yet. And they get off the bus in this new place and they walk across the grass. And we would think it's soft, beautiful green grass. But it, it punctures their feet. It's so hard to them. And the sunlight is so bright it blinds them. And they're afraid that it might start raining. And if it does, the raindrops would fall like bullets on them. They're just not fit for heaven yet. But they could be if they're willing to do business with what is preventing them from getting there. This is what's going through C.S. Lewis's imagination. Well, one poor, tra- one poor traveler has this red, twitching lizard crawling around on its shoulder, whispering in his ear all the time. Maybe it's an addiction, maybe it's self-reliance, maybe it's pride, maybe it's some awful thing that he has done in the past. Lewis doesn't tell us what it's all about, but he doesn't have to. We understand that this is some poisonous controlling thing in our lives. And we all understand what that is. Because we've all had those. And it's a torment to this guy. This thing's always whispering in his ear and keeping him enslaved and keeping him sick and un fit this proverbial little devil on his shoulder. But the man encounters an angel in this new land, not to sit on the other's shoulder and not to stir the water, but to set him free. And the angel says to the man, do you want me to make that thing be quiet? And the man says, of course. And the angel says, then I will kill it. And he reaches out to take hold of the slimy little wizard, lizard wizard off the guy's shoulder. And the angel's hand is so hot and so full of glory that the man recoils in pain. And he says, you're going to kill me instead. And the angel says, no, I'm not. Let me silence what has been troubling you. And this negotiation goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Until finally the man surrenders to the burning hand of the angel. And he says, even if it kills me, get rid of it. It would be better to die than to live with this creature. That is sick and tired of being sick and tired. And the angel reaches out and takes this lizard throws it to the ground, crushes it, and it begins to writhe and boil and change. And the lizard begins to transform itself into this beautiful silver stallion with a gold mane and a gold tail. 
and the man has collapsed back to the earth as well, this flimsy little ghost. And Lewis says he becomes a new made man. And he is transformed into this beautiful, muscled, rippling young man. And he gets up on that horse and they ride away over the horizon, Lewis says, into the rose-colored morning of the kingdom of God. This beautiful illustration that the very things that kill us and hurt us and enslave us when we're sick of them become the very things that can transport us and heal us and restore us and make us fit for the kingdom of God. You have been listening to Keeping the Faith, the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference may be. At Ronnie McBrayer will get you there in either case. Visit my website at RonnieMcBrayer.org, and there you can stay up to date. On my speaking schedule, books I have written, projects just over the widening horizon, and yes, you can find out more about me than anyone truly wishes to know. Thanks to Shutterstock Incorporated, located in New York City's Empire State Building, no less, for producing and licensing my theme music, Bobby Rains provides recording and technical expertise. Tim Riles created the Keeping the Faith logo and artwork. And Lynn Sunshine on My Shoulder Crow is credited with any and all photography. And as always, Toby and Mo, the two small wonder dogs that run my home, assisted with all editing. I'm Ronnie McBrayer. This has been Keeping the Faith, and I thank you for listening.